You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hello, this is Caroline Kay from carolinekay.co and you're listening to Snippets of Genius. If you're a client, show guest, weekly listener or friend of mine, welcome back. If you're new to the show, it's great to have you here and I hope that this show is exactly the inspiration you've been needing to become the person you most want to be. Each episode is your reminder that anything is possible. I speak with the world's most impressive leaders, entrepreneurs, and innovators to share their stories from the big lessons to the unbelievable moments. I know one of the things that people always say about the office is they're like, but what about the water cooler moment? What about the water cooler moments? I'm like, how shallow is a water cooler moment? Like, yes, talking to someone at a wall. Also, why, why have we got water coolers? Like, there's, there's so much plastic there in like the old way. Anyway, but probably it's probably just the little filter thing, whatever. But like those moments that people always say, but what about them? They're so like important. They were actually really shallow connection. Mm -hmm. So why would you want to bring those back when you can replace them with something much more intentional? To introduce Natalie Pierce, she is the co-founder of the Future Kind Collective, a culture consultancy with the service design expertise to create kinder, fairer, better designed employee experiences for every stage of company growth. So if you're someone that's building a business, you want to build a thriving culture, you're thinking about what kind of co-founder would be right for you, this episode is for you. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. So what's one thing you're really excited about right now? So we are hiring at the Futurecoin Collective. So thank you. We're hiring someone to be a kind of a wing person to Alicia and I and it's so exciting like we always went into starting a business to create a team I feel like as a culture consultancy like we want to be able to say we practice what we preach and like we do this internally and (laughs) ourselves as a case study also being open about the fact that we won't always get it right as well Ah. so it's the first kind of hire that we're doing but we're hoping to be hiring more at the end of this year. Okay, I'm going to jump into the quick fire round questions for you now. Tell us something people often get wrong about you. So people often think that I'm a lot more extroverted than I am. Like, I think people see me sometimes when I'm on stage and like when when I'm on stage, I'm a bit of a performer. Like I'll switch into game show host. Like that's my kind of like alter ego. I don't know why, but I'm always like, hello. And I think people assume that that means that I must be really extroverted and I'm like always hanging out with people and stuff. And the older I've got, the more alone time and quiet time I've needed. And I'm now really selective over like how much I'm out during the week. And I I think people always like, yeah, everyone's saying they're more introverted now, but genuinely like that's, I notice it. And my partner, Alicia, everyone notices it when I'm like, out too much in fact it's it's a bit of a joke between me and Alicia now like if she's like what you got on this week and I'm like oh gosh I'm out 
got to go to two events. She's like, oh, are you okay? Like, what are you doing at the weekend? So she obviously knows me like inside out, but I think a lot of people don't think that of me. What's one thing you wish you'd done sooner? I think it's easy to say, I wish I started my business sooner. But I think that that's, I think actually we started it at the right time, but I wish that I had started building my personal brand sooner. Okay. And to be fair, I've, I have been building it for about three, four years, but I wish I was doing it like six, eight years ago. And the reason being is like, I do feel like I've captured so many stories and so many experiences. And I think that what I've realized the more I've put myself out there is that there's so many incredible connections and relationships to build and when I before I started my business I was very like inward looking like I was building connections within my organization but not outside of it I also found it quite cringy I was like oh like who's going to care about the work that I'm doing and I wish I could go back in time and be like so many people care yeah so I think and I still speak to people now actually where they're like oh but my mates are going to make fun of me and it's like they might make fun of you at first, but when they see that you're succeeding with it and like people are interested in what you're saying, they will just be jealous that they're not doing it. <laughs> exactly. Actually, so just be the first mover. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be that. So what's the best part about your work? Oh, it's so hard to say. Working with my best mate every day right. is incredible. Good one. I think that seeing the penny drop with our clients that they can actually that culture can be such a strategic driver in their business and being like, oh, wow, like if I am really intentional about this, like it's going to have this impact. Then I think actually them seeing the impact after the work that we do together is just such an incredible moment. And actually I find it more, I'm more proud of what happens after our projects when I see our clients continuing the great work and going even further and doing all of these incredible things with their culture that our project was a catalyst for like that's that's kind of like the legacy that you leave and I think that's the that's yeah. the thing that really makes you feel happy how soon did you realize that you had a viable business because obviously when you start you're always questioning is this mm. gonna work? how's this gonna pan out when did you realize you really got something so we so Alicia and I both come from a consulting background so pricing things like understanding like how projects will work like we kind of had that as a bit of a superpower before we started. And we'd worked in agency, even though it was a different context for quite some time. And the other thing I should say is that we were actually refining the business in the background for about 18 months before we launched it. Okay, wow. So when we finally took the jump, we were pretty confident that we had something. However, the way in which we described what we did was nowhere near as strong as it is now. Right. And so... Post-launching, it probably took us about a year to refine our messaging, to refine the most interesting offers to our clients. And then more recently, so the beginning of this year, which is what, like, I guess two years in, we actually looked back at all of our clients and were like, what's our product market fit? And we realized that we were particularly interesting and attractive to b2b businesses and so that's kind of whilst we we have b2c clients that we work with the majority are b2b so that gives us something that we can focus in a bit more but yeah i would say that we did a hell of a lot of homework 
beforehand. Yeah. So we were very confident that, and, and that paid off. Definitely. And so along the way, as you have had both sides of the fence in businesses, consulting, and now running your own show, what's one piece of leadership advice that was brilliant or so awful you need to warn us? <laughs> I wish I'd known earlier, or I wish I was role modeled earlier, what it means to be a vulnerable leader nice. and a compassionate leader. I think like I've, I've often, and many of the leaders that I've worked with have been really caring, but they haven't necessarily been vulnerable. And I am a naturally vulnerable person. I think I like, I overshare often. I get like a vulnerability hangover from various conversations and I have not made that up, but I, I think it might have been Lauren Curry that I heard that from. But Excellent. anyway, it's, yeah, it's such a good description for it when you, such a good description. when you're really vulnerable and then you're like, oh God, you feel really anxious about it afterwards. So that's something I was, that's just what I do as human. And I, when I came in, or when I came into leadership roles, I was kind of the same person with the people that I was managing. And I noticed that, that, really resonated and that people I don't think I'm the best manager I do think I'm a really good leader and I think that's because I'm vulnerable and I'll tell people that I don't know but I I know for a really long time I felt really uncomfortable telling people that I was managing that I don't know the answer and so I try you know that classic thing where you're like I'm going to try and give an answer because I need to. Yeah. And that's not good for anyone. Yeah, so I really... Just that say I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know and let's work it out together. Yeah. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna help you find this out. Like, that. that's totally okay. But I yeah. think you have to be vulnerable nice. to do that. I'm sure that it's okay to do that. That is leadership. Yeah. So that others know when they don't know. Exactly. You can just say... Pays dividends. Yes. What's the hard lesson you've learned in business? Oh. I think that I think there's always more that you can be doing to look after yourself. Oh yes, hell yes, hallelujah. <laughs> I'm like I'm a boundary gal. I like really strict with my boundaries, but sometimes I'm my worst enemy, and I overwork myself even when I think I'm doing fine. And I we're creating a business based upon well-being that protects and respects well-being. And even so, we are not kind of, what's the word? Like, we're not protected from overworking ourselves. And I think that I have learned that lesson really hard of being like, oh, gosh. Because the thing is, when you leave like a, an agency where you, you have been overworked and you have been really stressed, I was like, right, I'm sorting myself out now. Yeah. I decide when I work. And it's going to be different and I'm going to take like three hours at lunch. Like, like a mirror. <laughs> and then you're like, hold on a second. Why am I stressed and burnt out? And it's like, oh, me. <laughs> I'm the problem. Yeah. So that, that is a constant learning. And whilst I talk about well-being so much and I can give such great advice to other people, yeah. I really struggle to always take heed of it myself. I think that it's really important to understand yourself and to understand what both drives you and motivates you and gives you energy, as well as the things that drain your energy or, you know, can trigger negative emotions. And basically that's about understanding what your core values are. 
and what you're kind of, I know this sound, this is going to sound a bit like lofty and fluffy, but understanding what your purpose is and like what kind of contribution you want to make in the world. I feel like when you know that and you're confident in like, this is the type of person I want to be, this is the type of life that I'm trying to create for myself, you can, you can then be yourself because you kind of know what those, those boundaries are and, and you can set boundaries. So yeah. Kind of said boundaries intentionally there, I guess, but it kind of both goes both ways. I really agree with you on knowing your values. And I feel like that is once you have the step-by-step framework, it's a really easy thing for you to do and learn and set yourself very clear parameters, guide your roadmap to get you to where you want to go. But the challenge of knowing your purpose, that feels like quite a big question to ask the audience. Any tips on how you would define your purpose if you're not sure, especially if you're working for a company? Because you almost feel yeah. that... It is so important, but as an entrepreneur, these are questions you must ask yourself, but maybe you haven't asked yourself before in a company. I think like, I definitely think it's not just for entrepreneurs, this kind of like idea around purpose and like finding out what that is. I think it's for everyone. And I think whether you want to start your own business or not, knowing how and in what ways you find meaning in life means that you're going to make better job choices and be more fulfilled in the work that you do. So that's the first thing that I wanted to say, just like purpose is for everyone. <laughs> and then in terms of how I found the framework of a Kigai, so the Japanese concept of yeah. a reason for being, I found that really useful for just like pulling out all of the different aspects of like what I found important. So I'm sure many of your listeners have come across a Kigai, but just in case they haven't, it's basically a Venn diagram where you've got moral beliefs, so the things that you believe in, you've got world needs or like societal needs that you really want to respond to. You've got your core strengths, so the things that you can do better than anyone else. And then the final one is like how to keep its value drivers. So how you can like make money out of those things, out of your skills and out of your your beliefs. And so that was a really important first step in my journey of being like, okay, what's important to me? And actually, Alicia, my co-founder, did the same thing. And so our business was born rather out rather than out of an idea of like, oh, we want to create this business and let's go do it. It was actually, it actually started from a point of view that we both had overlapping purposes and values. And we were like, okay, because of this overlapping purpose, if because of these overlapping values, we would be brilliant co-founders because we're yeah. starting from this point of alignment. So right. yeah. And I think a lot of people don't start with that point of alignment when they're setting yeah. up business and therefore two, three years down the line, it all falls apart. So 100%. it's really good to have those foundational pieces in place. But also if you're working for a company, you want to know that you're on board, as you said, with the bigger mission of the company that's aligned with who you are, yeah. your values and your purpose. And that's going to be a bit about the work you do. So tell us a little bit of a story of how perhaps you've gone into a business, I would imagine at some point where things aren't quite going as they should go. And you've maybe had to pull everything back together. Could you tell us a little bit about something like that? Yeah, totally. And the point that you just made about how when leaders and founders come together, but they're not aligned on stuff like mission and purpose and values, we often see, and a lot of our clients in the past have come to us where they're like, I think we're all on different pages. I think that we, if you asked each of us what the purpose and mission of the company we would all say something different. So that is totally normal. Yeah. And even if you're aligned at the start, 
doesn't mean you'll be aligned, you know, five years down the line. So 100%. I think that that is a really common issue, especially for like scaling companies that are growing rapidly. Like all at one minute, you're all around a table and you can all sit at the table and be like, okay, what is it that we're trying to achieve? And you're like, oh yeah, that's that thing. And then all of a sudden you can't fit around that table anymore and decisions are being made where the founder isn't involved. So misalignment is not like, it doesn't have to be a toxic thing. It's kind of like a symptom of rapid growth. But if yeah. we're intentional about it, we can bring people back together. And a lot of what we do, although it's in the context of culture and culture change, a lot of it is leadership alignment. And in, in fact, we created a, it's what we call the culture scorecard. It's a scorecard that we use to help companies do a bit of a temperature check, like how's my culture doing across a number of different pillars, eight different pillars. And the first one and the one we always start with is alignment. Right. And it's alignment of leadership, but it's also alignment of the team. Do the team know what your purpose, mission and values are? Do they know how that, how their individual role contributes to that wider purpose? Because that's the other thing, like you can have really great mission statements, but if people don't know how their indivi individual contributions yeah. contribute to that, then what have they got to be motivated for? They just feel like a, a wheel in a cog, a cog in a wheel, cog in a wheel. That's what I mean. It's <laughs> perfect. And I think, how do you get people to well, get on board and get in alignment, especially if they are starting to feel like this cog in a wheel? What one of the steps that you would advise to get people back on board? I think the centering on why the company was started in the first place is a really great place to start. And also tapping into why people joined the company when they joined. Like all of us remember, you know, an interview process, that first couple of weeks of onboarding and that, that excitement of like, I'm joining a new company, I can't wait, yeah. all of that stuff. Now, for some people that might dissipate almost immediately. Hopefully not. Hopefully it's lasts for, for a long time. But all of us have that excitement from the from day one, right? So it's like, how can we tap back into that and understand, okay, what was the origin story of the company? But then also what drew people to join us? Because that's the thing that if we can bring that back to the form and we can reconnect people with those reasons they're much more likely to get the spark back for the company. Yeah, oh, definitely. And I think there's that, there's those questions that you need to ask yourself, but also need to sort of think about through different stages of the journey. So how do you go into those companies and help them to ask those questions? So we are doing lots of workshops and it's workshop. We have a, our approach is what we like to call top-down, bottom-up. So it's kind of meeting in the middle of both leadership direction, but also the experiences of everyone else in the organization and people on the ground. And I think it's really important for the two to meet in the middle. So leadership feel like they are able to have that strategic voice, but your wider team also feel like they're being listened to and their experiences are, are, are valued. So we take a, quite a very classic user-led research approach, to be honest. I come from a design background, so of course I would say that. So we are looking for different points of 
of collecting data, really. So we will do surveys, which is the culture scorecard. We'll do workshops with leadership team. We'll do focus groups with the wider organization. And what we're looking for is a mixture of things, really. So we're looking for what is the essence of the purpose and values of these this organization. So we can almost uncover that like root and that like anchor for the organization. But then we're also looking at what are the behaviors that are celebrated in this organization? What does this organization look like when it's at its best? Because they'll, everyone will have stories of that, right? So we want to highlight, protect, and even elevate all of the greatness that is in the cultures that we're working with, whilst also identifying the frustrations, the challenges, the hurdles that are getting in people's way from being, you know, living their best culture and living their values to the best of their ability. So to begin with, it's very much a discovery of really understanding what their culture looks like today, being really honest and open about that, but then also looking to the future. Where, would, where do they want to be? Where, what does good look like in terms of the culture? And then creating a plan to actually make that happen. And what is the best example you've seen of someone living their best values, living their best culture? I love that turn of phrase. Gosh, there's a... So I think a really good example that I often use in the talks that I do is actually from Patagonia. So outdoor clothing company who, I guess, so their whole purpose was about, or is about, I should say, protecting the planet and improving the environment and, you know, really focusing on climate change and things like that. I think like their recent action of the founder giving over all shares, all shareholder rights to a kind of a, a kind of foundation that they've created, which is basically all profits in Patagonia are going to go towards environment saving initiatives. So that's like that can't be more aligned to this whole idea of purpose and improving the environment over profit. So I think that's a really good example more recently from them. But then they also, that's not actually the example that I often use in my talks. So the other way in which they live their values. So they have a, a lot of values around flexibility. The founder actually wrote a book called Let My People Go Surfing, which nice. I think that's a really good a indication title. of like what his approach to flexibility is. But they actually used their policies, their like workplace policies to kind of inform what flexibility meant. So allowing people the time to go out and be outdoors and encouraging that, but also looking at what flexibility might mean for new parents. So pre-pandemic, I don't know how this changed post-pandemic, but they had massive subsidies in their offices for childcare. So that meant that they had 100% return to work rate for new mums. And that's kind of another way in which they're living their values and actually putting that into policy, which I think, I think people often think of values as like a really fluffy, lofty thing. I'll put it on my website or I'll put it on the wall and like the job's done. But actually, if you take your values and you say, okay, what does this mean in terms of measurable, observable behaviors? What does good and bad look like? And how can this influence the decisions that we make, the policies that we have as a business, the benefits that we offer our people? Like that's, that's when you see the power of values. And I think that 
that's one of my kind of personal missions, I guess, to help myth bust this idea of what values actually are. Like, they're not just words on the page. There's so much more, but we have to do the work to get there, if that makes sense. Definitely. Oh, God, best of myths for us. I'd yes. love to know, like, the <laughs> big myths surrounding building a great culture, whether that's part of the vision or part of the values or the vision. Like, which part of it do, do you find that people just have it so wrong? I think that one of the big ones that was kind of really thrown into the spotlight during the pandemic was this concept of like camaraderie mm-hmm. almost being a shield or a kind of a smokescreen for okay. culture. And I think that actually culture is so much more than just camaraderie. And what I mean by camaraderie is things like the ping pong table, the the drinks, the socials on a on a Friday, the free breakfast that you like those things are great but they're not culture they create friendship at work and that's where the camaraderie comes in but it's not a proxy for a great culture great cultures are so much more than that they're strategic they should be you know informing every level of the business and they're also about like the the rituals the way we communicate the way we collaborate and so I think that I am glad in a way that many companies had to go through that painful period of being like, shit, we have no culture because we no longer have an office. And it's like, no, it's just the hard work needs to happen now. You need to be much more intentional. And so I always encourage companies, whether they are face-to-face or not, to kind of design their culture remote first because then it will work, like it kind of works its way backwards. It's like that's the most extreme or the most demanding interpretation of your culture so kind of work backwards from there nice love it oh that's really good and I know that a lot of people have shifted the way that they're working in terms of a lot of office I've heard so much while I've been in London on this trip there's so many people that say oh you wouldn't go to the office anymore because it used to be a building that was a skyscraper with multiple floors and now it's two floors or now we've moved into much much smaller space and only 20% 20% of the office can be in the office mm, at yeah. any one time. So it's not even like today, everyone get in the office and let's have a rally. But no, not physically possible. Yeah. So I think all these big shifts and changes have really changed the way that everyone needs to think about culture and like you're saying. So are there any other examples you can give us where there's those different scenarios because of the different physical locations where you could give some advice and some tips about how to think about this? Yeah, so I think when it comes to gathering, like gathering your people, it's about giving people a really good reason for gathering. And there's a brilliant book on this. It's called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. And honestly, like this book, my co-founder and I read at the same time, thankfully, because we were sending each other pictures all the time. So if one of us was reading it and the other one wasn't, it would have been really annoying. And um, I know, exactly. (laughs) And basically, it's all about being really intentional about when you bring people together. And it's it's basically a rule book for great gatherings, whether it's a wedding or a birthday party or like a workplace event. And I really love that idea of intentionality because people are much more likely to engage when they know that why they're there, when they can see the 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 draw they can see the the benefit of them being there and you know when they 
come into the space, it's all kind of curated around whatever that goal is, whether it's connection, whether it's brainstorming, whether it's something more creative. I think that I know one of the things that people always say about the office is they're like, but what about the water cooler moment? What about the water cooler moments? I'm like, how shallow is a water cooler moment? Like, yes, talking to someone at a wall. Also, why, why have we got water coolers? Like, there's, there's so much plastic there in like, <laughs> the old way. Anyway, but probably, it's probably just the little filter thing, whatever. But like those moments that people always say, but what about them? They're so like important. They were actually really shallow connection. Mm -hmm. So why would you want to bring those back when you can replace them with something much more intentional? Fantastic. So that, that's my big thing on connection. Ah, I love that. I feel it was a mic drop moment. And three <laughs> stress <laughs> there. Not three about it. Yeah, water like, yes. coolers. I'm like, yes, no, yes. down with the water coolers. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think, I suppose, on this journey of helping great companies, big and small, develop their cultures, Tell me, what do you think has been the most the biggest insight or aha moment for you that you've taken away on your journey? One of the things that has been such a aha moment for me is definitely really starting to dig into the cultural norms of different countries and understanding like the different levels of culture that you have within an organization. So you you have an organization culture, yeah. you have subcultures of the different teams, like a finance team is very different to a marketing team. Sure. They're all within the umbrella of the, the values of the organization and the mission of the organization. But it's, it's important to be cognizant of the different needs of different team types and different okay. professions. So that's fascinating in itself. But then when you zoom out even further, especially for multinational companies and international companies, you also have the cultural dynamics of countries of actual like you know the brits are very different to americans the eastern and western world are very different like there, there's so many different norms that could be interpreted in many different ways if we don't understand them so for example scheduling is something that traditionally is very strict in the uk but in latin america companies it's something that is a little bit more flexible if someone turns up to, late to a meeting from a Latin America company, that's not rudeness. That's just kind of part and parcel of the culture there. And so we've been really digging into what this means in the workplace and how we can better forge understanding for multinational teams of these differences and how we can kind of create rituals that bring the two together. And that's something that we've been working on right now. And it's heavily influenced by an incredible book called The Culture Map by Erin Mayer. It's fascinating. Like, and it's, I, I think sometimes when I talk about this, like a challenge that I get back is like, isn't this stereotyping? And it's like, well, of course you can kind of look at it with that lens. However, I prefer to see it as empathy and understanding and building compassion for different geographies and different nationalities. And it's just been such a fascinating thing to work with one of our more recent clients on and really get stuck into what it means for their different yeah. teams and locations. It's just, I could really geek out on that. That's so <laughs> And as someone that's been living in another country for five years now and quite literally having to wrap my head around why they think it completely differently yeah. to the way I think about silly things like food or you know like how much time you should spend 
eating a day, I would say I'm used to grabbing a sandwich on the go. So that sick in Italy, this yes. idea of grabbing something on the go. You've got to sit down and yep. you eat, you've got to enjoy. And, and there's a ritual about that, right? It's a, and it's a, co- a connection yeah. and relationship building thing. And that's another. So basically in this book, there's like eight or nine different spectrums yeah. and it kind of plots research-based, evidence-based, like plots different countries on these scales. And food is actually lunch and the approaches to lunch is a really big one. And how for some countries, it's very transactional. And for other countries, it's like the core yeah. of building relation- business relationships as well. This isn't a stereotype. Yeah. No, this is this isn't how they think. It's cultural it's norms. It's how they're brought up. It's what they believe. And actually, once you've been there for long enough, I can tell you say, I'm like, why do we do it the way we do it? <laughs> I think they I, converted. Like, I am all for long lunches, right? Like, oh, I yeah. block out the time in my diary. I protect it. And sometimes all I, all I do is sit on my bed, like scrolling through my phone. But I'm like, that's my time. That's your time. So maybe that's I need to time. move to Italy. I love those concepts of rituals that you've talked about. I wonder if we could dig back into that a little bit. Oh, more. yes. And I'm just so interested to know, just sort of like, as in, is it always treated as a separate area to coat your mission, your values? And like, oh, what are your rituals going to be in a business? Is that something that comes up or, or do you just weave it into the design as you're building? No, so rituals design is like a a big part of the work that we do. And in the same way that you would map the customer journey of a product or a service, we map the employee journey within an organization. And to be fair, that's quite easy. Like the steps are the same. So you've got hiring and onboarding. You've got career progression. You've got, well, so you've got got offboarding, you've got promotion, performance management. And I guess there's a kind of big bucket around communication and collaboration and project work and and things like that. And so we look across those moments. There's many more than I just said, but I don't want to bore you with a big old list. We look across those moments and we say, okay, how can we create rituals that are going to reinforce your values, that are going to create alignment, that are going to, you know, be inclusive, that promote psychological safety, like all of the kind of great, the great pillars of culture. Like how can we be really intentional about the rituals that we create? And what I mean by a ritual, it's basically any moment where you bring people together. So it could be your stand-up. It could be your weekly leadership team meeting. It could be a client update. It could be your all hands. It could be your, you know, annual socials, whatever. Like Anything where you're bringing your teams together, it's in, I think, or we think, it's important to ritualize some of those things because that creates momentum and a, a kind of rhythm for your teams of like, this is the way we act around here. This is, these rituals are important to our organization because of these reasons. They reinforce our values. And I think that, especially when it comes down to things like connection, collaboration, recognition. Yeah. If we don't create some rituals to invigorate these things and to kind of kickstart these things and to remind us of the importance of these things, we can easily just get into into the motions of just, yeah. we're busy, we've got to do this work. Yeah. And it becomes very transactional and rituals kind of help us take a step back, take, take a breath and kind of make sure that our culture is always front and center. I love this. What would be an example of a good ritual versus a bad ritual? Like, even if it's just doing the same thing, like, because you give us an example of like, 
I don't know, you said like a stand-up or an all-hands or a promotion. So like an example of what bad looks like and what good looks like. So I think most of us have been experienced <laughs> what bad is, but just to give us some benchmarks. Yeah, so I think a bad ritual is one that is completely unstructured, but unstructured without intention, because you could have an unstructured ritual, right? And that's part of the purpose. But I think often we just put meetings in the diary and we're like, show up, we haven't got an agenda. Yeah. And like, you're just, everyone's just sitting there like, why are we here? That's a bad, but it's not a ritual at all, really, because it has no kind of guard rouse or indications yeah. of like why we're here and what it is we're trying to achieve. So unstructured is not our friend when it comes to rituals. Perfect. Uh, good rituals is obviously the opposite to that, like yeah. structured, clear purpose, clear reason why each person has been invited. Nice. And a clear follow-up as well. So I think often we've all been in meetings where like things are agreed and then there's no follow-up. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, that's just a moment in time that's just yeah, a yeah. bit lost. And I think the final thing that I wanted to say actually on on rituals is check-ins. Like so many times we will come into a meeting and we just get straight into it straight away. Yes. It's not building connection and it's not creating time for people to say, you know what, I'm having a bit of a shit week. And just even the act of saying, I'm having a bit of a shit week at the moment, even if you don't go into detail, it kind of creates a moment of vulnerability. It creates a moment of humility where people can just be like, oh, okay, well, like, let's not be hard on Jeff right now because he's not having a good time. And you can do it really simply by getting people to share a gift in the chat that describes how they're feeling if you don't want people to say it. Or you can go around the room and say, what energy are you bringing into the meeting right now? And so someone might come in and be like, I'm buzzing. I'm absolutely buzzing. My football team won last night and I'm bringing that energy in. Great. Or someone else might say, I'm bringing a bit of a frustrated energy in today because I'm trying to buy a new house. I keep putting offers in and they keep getting rejected. And you don't need to follow that up. You don't need to say anything in that moment. But even saying that, just like, it's like, oh, yeah. I've said that now. Yeah. And then if you're the boss on the call, you can follow up afterwards and say, hey, let's chat about that. It sounds like you're going through a tough time. Yeah, nice. Little nice. moments of connection. Just to be human. Just to be human. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. We have to remind ourselves how to be human sometimes. <laughs> yes, yeah, not be the corporate machine. Let's <laughs> not do that. Well, right, that's amazing. You've given me so much juicy, juicy content already in this show. So many wonderful pearls of wisdom. But I think I'd love to know, just throughout your career and sort of building up, what are some of the most important things you've learned along the way? I think that a learning that I had early this year was it's kind of a mix of staying in your lane. Nice. But also, I really like this phrase at the moment, which I got from another book that I'm reading called Less But Better. The book's not called that. The saying's called that. The book's called Essentialism. But this whole idea of less but better is like focusing on less things at a given time, but the things that you're focusing on are higher quality. And you can really give your all to those things rather than stretching yourself too thinly. And I think that when I, prior to starting my own business, I was really bad at that. And I stretched myself way too thinly. I I had burnout. I got signed off work sick for a period of time. And I, I remember at the time 
describing it like my mind was split into so many fragments and so many pieces that there was just nothing left. There was like nothing holding it together. And I wish that maybe I learned this lesson sooner. But even starting a business, like I, I, I think I know it in my heart of hearts, but even early this year, like Alicia and I had to take a moment where we were like, we're doing a lot right now. Are all the things that we're doing the right things for us to be focusing on? And we realized that a handful of them were literally just things that we were doing because our competitors were doing them or our friends were doing them. And we were like, okay, less but better. Yeah, definitely. It is, you can be so busy with busy work, which is not purposeful work. It's not intentional. It's not the stuff you really want to do. It's not going to build a better future for you. It's just, well, we're doing it because we thought we should. And that's, yeah. that's just, you know, that's the beginnings of you just being in hustle and yeah. not actually enjoying and just taking the moments like the, the Italian lunch, just taking the moment to yeah. enjoy it. <laughs> like go further. So I love that. Final question for you today. If you're having a bit of a bad day, feeling in the blues, what's one music track that lights you up and makes you feel you can take on the day? <laughs> you know what? This is so hard because I have like so many. Dreams, Fleetwood Mac is nice. always a good, banger. Good. Anything from Lizzo, like you can't go wrong. Janet Jackson together again, I was listening to the other day and I danced in my bathroom. <laughs> so yeah, anything, anything a bit like. 100%. Yeah. I love it. You have been an absolute delight to have on the show. Oh, thank you. Ever so much. And just what pearls of wisdom we've had today, really thinking about those moments that matter, building those rituals, thinking about not just doing things for the sake of them, but being super intentional. And there's so many more sound bites along the way. I can't thank you enough. Thanks for being a fab guest on Spirits of Genius. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. And that's a wrap for this week. But before I go, can I just remind you that you can also watch snippets of Genius and snippets of these episodes on YouTube. And actually, this particular one is well worth seeing. So you can see us in this great little studio that we had. If only I hadn't had that technical glitch. I'll be there next time and I'll set it up and I'll do it better because that's all part of the journey to building better. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And just remember, there is no silver bullet. Opportunities are there for you. So chase your dreams with the knowledge that you can do anything you set your mind to. Stay curious, enjoy every minute of the journey, and I'll see you very soon. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.